2: All right. This is a show we've been talking about doing for a while, although maybe a fairer thing to say or I hope a more accurate thing to say would be we feel as a show that if we don't do episodes periodically about issues of race in America, we're not doing our job. Um, as some of you know, I raised a, a child of color, a, a boy of color. He's now 27 years old. And whenever I would say to, some, to him about something in our lives, well, that's not about race. He would say, everything is about race. Um, and he usually turned out to be right. So uh, we're going to uh, focus on very, some very specific issues today. We've got some really uh, great guests, and we are going to talk about why, why is it still hard? To be black in America. I think that's the name of the show. Uh, Joining us is old friend uh, and uh, much more than that, too, Gene Seymour, culture critic, writer, jazz aficionado, uh, contributor to CNN Opinion and publications like the Baffler Book Forum and The Nation, uh, wherein he has written about all these kinds of things. Uh, Joining us uh, by phone is Bruce Haynes, professor of sociology at UC Davis and the co author with his wife, uh, Sima Solovich, of Down the Up Staircase. Joining us through the the miracle of Skype uh, from South Africa is Chris Marsh, demographer and associate professor of sociology at the University of Maryland, currently a Fulbright scholar in South Africa for 2017. So, um, there's so much that we want to talk about today, but we're going to key some of it, uh, Bruce Haynes, uh, to your book. Uh, it's very much a New York story, but it's also very much an American story. It's a multi-generational story. And as you say towards the beginning, in a way, your family story appears to defy some of the things that we're going to talk about today, that if you go back all the way back to, your, I think your great grandparents were black landholders in the South, that that in some ways the progress that your family family made is is exceptional rather than than the kind of norm I I think we're going to be talking about today. Nonetheless, as you lay out in this book, that doesn't mean that there haven't been incredible and unique challenges. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. Give us kind of a a sense of of the story you tell.
3: Well, first, Colin, let me say thanks for having me on the show. Um, I my wife and I wanted to tell this story about multiple generations um, across the, the 20th century, um, because my family captured both the, the migration story, the story of uh, attempt to uh, become a part of the talented 10th, uh, the attempts for social mobility, and, as well as uh, the, the struggles that race creates for limiting that social mobility across the 20th century.
2: Yeah, maybe say a little bit more about this. For example, you kind of open with a story involving your parents. Your parents, in some ways, uh, are uh, are the thing that you just described. They are people who have attempted to ascend and have ascended with some success. On the other hand, uh, towards the end of their lives, they're living in kind of, you could almost say, kind of a crazy situation, right? Well, indeed,
3: um Well, you know, there's both a personal side to the story, and then there's the sort of sociological side to the story. Um, There was a conflict in the household over uh, an undisclosed marriage that my father had that led to conflict between my parents that in some ways was lived through the house. And at the same time, uh, my parents also sacrificed um, to keep me and my two brothers in prep schools, and in private education while they did this on two social workers' salaries in New York City.
2: Um, You know, as we go through this today, I'm going to be referencing culture a lot, because as a white person, I can't talk about the lived reality of, of black Americans. That's why you guys are on the show. But um, Gene Seymour, as he was out promoting the movie Get Out, Jordan Peele said that he intended that movie as an attack on the myth of a post-racial America, that you know, that he saw in the wake of the Obama presidency and other cultural factors that I think we'll talk about, that idea out there. Um, I think that's sort of a lot about what we're talking about today, too, is the myth of post-racial America.
0: Right. Um, we're, we're talking about myths, period, I think, Colin. Um, I mean, you and I have had these discussions before, and both of us agree, despite our cultural dis, uh, uh, not, uh, unsimilarities, that race is a myth. But racism is not. And I think that's the distinction that too often either gets reversed by some people with different agendas or uh, are completely ignored.
2: Um, One of the things that uh, started us down this road, the road that leads to this particular episode, is the way in which I think Gene, as you said, the hottest writer in America uh, in the past 12 months, has been James Baldwin. James Baldwin's been dead a long time, but uh, his writings seem to be flourishing right now, partially, of course, uh, because of the documentary uh, I Am Not Your Negro. Let's hear a clip. This is James Baldwin. Uh, I believe this is from his uh, famous debate uh, in London against William F. Buckley. Uh, And let's hear a little bit of James Baldwin
0: what you have to look at is what is happening in this country and what is really happening is a brother has murdered brother knowing it was his brother white men have lynched negroes knowing them to be their sons white women have had negroes burned knowing them to be their lovers it is not a racial problem it's a problem whether or not you're willing to look at your life and be responsible for it and then begin to change it that great western house I come from is one house and I am one of the children of that house simply I'm the most despised child of that house. And it is because the American people are unable to face the fact that in fact I am flesh of their flesh, bone of their bone, created by them. My blood, my father's blood is in that soil. They can't face that.
2: So, uh, Gene, um, I think one reason that uh, if it's true that James Baldwin has been America's hottest writer in the last 12 months, a lot of that, spoken in 1969 still seems somewhat true. Yes, I think that the reason why Baldwin, uh, who
0: did not have the kind of acclamation, it can be said uh, with some assurance, during his lifetime, not even from other black writers, uh, enjoys the kind of stature that he does because, I I think, only because of what happened with Obama being elected president. The perceptions that he had of us being in that one house, and yet also being despised or neglected or ignored, um, in in the invisibility sense, uh, sense of the sense of the word, is uh, it, it, it has become more distinctly perceived now by by several generations. Not, I mean, he's become kind of a hero of the Black Lives Matter movement, but he's his perception of of this. Malays that we've had for for centuries has has been both angry and yet all encompassing and all embracing in terms of what he perceives to be the best possible future, the best possible outcome, or the best possible perception of who we are. And he's never he never strayed from that. He never went all the way over to a nationalist perspective. Uh, he he was you know he he was able to see that that this whole thing contained multitudes both the problem and and maybe its solution
2: i want to talk about some of those uh, different perspectives those different paths in the second segment but uh, i think it's more important right now to see if we can paint at least some of this very complicated uh, picture so um chris marsh um I think there, you know, I said at the beginning, I talked about the myth of a post-racial America. There's, I I think, another myth that I might call game over. You know, people see the Obama presidency. People see people we all watch, you know, Shonda Rhimes and and Lee Daniels' uh, primetime series uh, about a very affluent, arrived class of African-Americans. I think it's pretty easy to translate that into, all right, so basically their socioeconomic spectrum is pretty much like everybody else's, uh, presumably their middle class. Class is also pretty much like the white middle class. What do we know about the ability of the black middle class to get, hold on to, and transfer wealth?
1: Right. So thank you for having me on the show. Um, I think you bring up some really important points. And one of the things we have to think about is we have to think about the black middle class and some of their outcomes. Do their outcomes look similar to the white middle class? If we look at like health, for example, We know that the black middle class have poor health outcomes than do the white middle class. So you're of the same class status. So the difference is one's white, one's black. So the health outcomes are different. We also look at like segregation patterns. We know that blacks are more likely to live in predominantly black areas. Black middle class are likely to live in predominantly black areas. And that directly relates to their ability to acquire wealth because they live in areas where their house doesn't appreciate at the same rate as do white middle class. And so you see a difference there, where there's a difference in the wealth disparities. And so we have to always think about the black middle class relative to the white middle class and relative to outcomes, and outcomes do not look the same. And the one thing that is different is the race of the middle class, one being black, one being white. and. We talked a little bit earlier about this post racial America. And in some ways, President Obama was good for race relations, but in some ways, President Obama was a setback for race relations because people want to assume that we live in this post racial America where race doesn't matter. But when The black middle class have lower health outcomes, than the white middle class, race does still matter. So I often tell my students, I really don't like this notion about a post-racial America. I want a a race fair America where certain racial and ethnic groups aren't advantaged because of their race. And in the same breath, other racial and ethnic groups aren't disadvantaged because of their race and ethnicity.
2: You know, uh, Bruce, I want to go back to something that Chris said at the beginning of her comments. Because so last December I was at a, this TEDMED conference and of all the speakers of this conference, the person who just stopped everybody in their tracks was a sociologist named David Williams doing a lot of research about racial disparities and death rates. Um, and in particular, one of the things that he cited, and I would be surprised. Well, let's, I'll, maybe I'll say I wouldn't be surprised if you'd heard of it. Was this kind of remarkable study of Yale graduates, African American Yale graduates, uh, where like as much as possible, you know, the, it was possible to control for other variables within a black cohort. It was a pretty small sample size, but I mean, they're just their death rates. They died younger than their white counterparts. They just did, and and, and the, there's even been some examination now by Williams and other sociologists of, of broader sample groups where it seems uh, that the the disparity in death rate, the tendency of African-American men to die younger than their white counterparts, increases as their socioeconomic status rises. I mean, that's sort of counterintuitive. You think, well, you don't have access to good health care, you live in a crappy neighborhood, whatever. You know, no, no, no. And and one term that's emerged for this, for this is John Henryism, the notion that these men, because they had to clear uh, a different bar than their white counterparts, took on a lot of stuff like hypertension, a lot of stuff that is stress-related. I, I, I want to hear both you and Gene about this, but Bruce, just reading your book, I, I feel as though you can maybe relate to that idea.
3: Well, you know, I, I think the context of black life, uh, people have come up with the colloquial expression, you know, the black tax, uh, mm-hmm. to make reference to the idea that, uh, you know, there, there is a tax that one pays for being black in America, and despite one's class— you know if we remember uh, even Oprah Winfrey has experienced her own uh, racial incidents uh, and and so even uh, her great wealth doesn't protect her from the slights of racism
2: um Jean what about that what about uh John Henryism I'm guessing you can identify with that concept
0: <laughs> yeah um I was I was talking earlier in pre- preparing for this program about my own experiences um I always felt that it didn't matter how much I had learned about how to get along with others or how to carry on my craft as a reporter or a writer in my in my life. i I somehow felt, regardless of all that, that there was something extra that I had to do, some kind of extra not just effort. I mean, people will say, well, you have to try twice as hard as anybody white. Yes, that's true. But you, but, you, but the part of the burden is also carrying the perception that you're being seen as something before you have a chance to tell anybody who you are. They see what you are before they can detect who you are or, or, allow, or allow themselves to see who you are. And I think that's the disparity, the main disparity um, in, in the way we see each other um, and on, the, on this particular issue.
2: That 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 I see you, and I already before you've spoken a word, I've con- come to a whole bunch of conclusions about what you might think, what you might like, what kinds of presumptions yeah. I would say, not conclusions. Presumptions. presumptions is better. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. I, if I yeah, go ahead, Chris. If, yeah. If I could add to
1: that, so the other another notion that blacks have to deal with when you see a black person, you see all Black people. So they have to represent all of Black America. So if they do something wrong, there it is, the Black people do this. Other racial and ethnic groups don't have to carry that extra burden. If they do something wrong, it's attributed to the person. But for Blacks, it's typically attributed to the group.
2: Um, I think that's a great point too. all right I'm going to play uh, a clip that will be painful uh, to all of your ears but I think uh, this is one of the elephants in the room that we kind of have to talk about Uh, this is uh, from the 2016 campaign I don't think I need to say anything more.
3: Look how much African-American communities have suffered under democratic control. To those I say the following. What do you have to lose by trying something new like trump what do you have to lose i say it again what do you have to lose look what do you have to lose you're living in poverty your schools are no good you have no jobs 58 percent of your youth is unemployed what the hell do you have to lose
2: All right. uh, Probably you're all having a little bit of PTSD uh, right now. Sorry about that. Um, But Bruce Haynes. I don't know. One thing we know is that that didn't resonate very well. I guess you can make the argument that uh, Barack Obama got 93 percent of the vote in uh, in 2012. Four years later, uh, Hillary Clinton's share of the vote dropped to 88. I don't think that's because Donald Trump's message was so persuasive. Uh, But it did. Talk about one of these things where African Americans feel as though they're called upon to answer that. I found so many instances of somebody with a microphone walking up to young bl- black people on college campuses and going, what about that whole idea that you've got nothing to lose? I don't know. What was your reaction when Trump said those things?
3: Well, you know, the, the, the irony is that all of his policies um, contribute to the very things he's blaming black people for. Um, the poverty, the crime, the, the dysfunction, um, and uh his appointing people who undermine public education, his appointing people who uh, (coughs) undermine uh, public housing, um, these are not things that contribute to the the collective good of of the black community.
2: So, Gene, this would be just sort of a piece of rhetoric that nobody really
0: fell for? Uh, To begin with, I could begin in many places here, but to begin with the reductive nature of his perception of... What do you have to lose? And every time I hear something like that, I say, who are you talking to? Who or whom are you talking to? Who are you addressing minority, you know, poverty level? You know, throwing these things out like as though this were still the 1970s and it was still allowable to view all black people as being either the Jeffersons or good times. I mean, no, okay? Just no. And uh, it's the lack of perception that I think people— Everybody, Anybody with any sense could see through that kind of reductive uh, definition. And, uh, you know, of course it wasn't going to sway anybody. It wasn't going to change any minds because of that.
2: Yeah. You know, Chris Marsh, uh, the, there was a piece of comedy uh, that was done uh, uh, during the election season that I think struck people as as kind of, I don't know. Revelatory is probably the wrong word. on Saturday Night Live. It's somewhat famous now as the Black Jeopardy sketch in which uh, Tom Hanks played a Donald Trump supporter. I think His name was Dave. He was on this Black Jeopardy show with two African-American women. Uh, and uh, I thought about pulling this clip and then I thought it just it takes too long to get through. But it, sort of the joke was that this guy there with his Make America Great Again hat had a very similar point of view to the people, to the other contestants. That for a lower middle class white person in America, the kind of white person who is open to Trump's message uh, about white disenfranchisement and the necessity of some kind of white recrudescence, um, that some of the messages that might circulate easily in the African-American community would be similar kinds of messages. I don't know. I don't know whether I'm asking you to comment on that as a demographer or just a human being. But either way, (laughs) what's your take?
1: Right, so um, Trump is interesting on on so many different levels, and I didn't actually see that skit on Saturday Night Live, so I do apologize in advance. Mm-hmm. But with that being said, I it's really important that we understand, as scholars, and me as a sociologist in particular, that no group is a monolithic. So it's it's never a good idea to just lump one group into this category and talk about them as one group. And Trump had a tendency to do that. And the other thing that he had a tendency to do was really kind of relate everything to culture, but we have to look at the structure of it. And anybody that always kind of um, deduces something just to the culture is problematic and troublesome to me as a sociologist. We have to look at the structure. We also have to look at the cultural aspect of it and a lot of, um, lower class whites, I don't think. Look at the structural part of it. They can only understand and only wrap their mind around the cultural part of it, or their perception of what the cultural part of it is for certain black groups, and that just doesn't work. And it just does. It doesn't make any sense to me.
2: I don't know. I could see by your body language.
1: I,
0: I, I've, i mean? I've pretty much. Well, I, I, I guess I have a different definition or take on culture. I think that at its at its purest, I shouldn't say purest. At its best, culture. Is is capable of of demolishing or diminishing mythology, because it is in essence such a varied and widespread uh, construct for society. I think that culture could, and let me emphasize this, could help to break down these things if if the definitions of the of of culture were broadened, and the perceptions of what makes cultural connections possible were also broadened. Um, I spent my whole life, my whole life, trying to tell people that there is no one way of being black, just as there is no one way of being white. Uh, I've done it in my work, I did it as a journalist, I did it as a critic, uh, I've, I've just done this over and over again, and I still cannot understand why this is so hard to accept. I mean, we're better at it now, in terms of the popular culture I think has acknowledged this to, to a large extent, we, we can talk about that a little later. But I, I just don't understand what the resistance is uh, even in some elements of the mess of of of, uh, of, of, of journalism. You know, I mean, you know, in some, some elements of journalism still haven't quite figured
2: that out. Um, I, I do want to talk about this. I want to talk about it specifically in terms of culture. Um In fact, let's take a break here. We can come back. I, I think uh, I can help us get into this. We've got three terrific panelists here. We'll talk to them some more after this break.
1: Instead of educate, they rather convict the kids. As dirty as the water in the system is. Is it a
3: felony or a misdemeanor? Maria Sheriff over making more of this arena. It's just Viola Davis to say this. The roads out of help and the gaysters. is really all they gave us. We need aid. Tana decoy Sequoyah Booker's. The salt of the earth to get us off of sugar and greasy foods. I don't believe the news or radio stereotypes. We refuse
1: brainwashed in the cycle to spin. We write our own story Black America again. You know. W- w- one way.
2: All right. We are doing a show about, uh, well, partly about what it what it means to be black in America in 2017. Uh, and in fact, uh, Donald Glover, in uh, creating his very interesting television series, Atlanta, said that that was his purpose, too. He wanted to talk about he wanted to do a show about what it's like to be black in America. We've talked with our guests who I'll reintroduce in just a second, Um uh, about that whole question of uh, of different voices, different approaches, different paths. Um, that obviously was, uh, at the time uh, of uh, the events of the James Baldwin movie, I'm Not Your Negro, uh, a very pressing matter. He focuses an awful lot on Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and Medgar Evers um, in, in that documentary. Um, um. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm pausing because I'm set, trying to figure out how to set up this clip. So in Atlanta, which is a very, very funny TV series, uh, you're going to hear uh, Donald Glover here. He plays the main character, Earn, a very earnest uh, young man who wants to be the manager uh, of his uh, hip-hop uh, nascent star cousin uh, who's, uh, who uh, raps as Paperboy. Uh, you're also going to hear uh, in the background this kind of Zonker Harris type uh, character who uh, often adds little comic touches. So uh, take it away.
3: So, Zooty... Tycoon... You on in on paper boy? <laughs>
2: what? No!
3: Please, man. People ain't just nice, Ern. Eh? When was the last time you were nice to a girl you weren't trying to smash? This morning? You're talking about your daughter, man. That's gross. No, it would be gross if I was trying to smash. I don't want a handout. I-, I want to manage you. <laughs> manage? You know where the word manage come from? Manus, Latin for hand. Probably, but I'm gonna say no for the purpose of my argument. Manage. Come from the word man, and uh, that ain't really your lane. My lane? Yeah, man, I need Malcolm. You two Martin. You know what they did to him? They killed him. Didn't they kill Malcolm, too? Well, no, they say that, but ain't nobody seen the body since the funeral. That's how funerals work. Alfred, you are already, Malcolm, okay? You have that already. What you really need is a silent wild card somebody who's about the money, the opportunity, who can play both sides if needed. Oh, like Don Lemon. Fair point. Let
2: me rephrase. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <I> love it. <laughs> F- funny, though, that was. And it was very funny. First of all, let me reintroduce guest Gene Seymour. You hear him laughing in studio here. Contributor to CNN Opinion and other publications, including the Baffler Book Forum and The Nation. Uh, writes about a lot of the issues we're talking about today. Bruce Haynes, professor of sociology at UC Davis. Co-author of Down the Up Staircase, uh, a memoir uh, about multiple generations of his own family. Uh, Chris Marsh, demographer and associate professor of sociology at University of Maryland, currently a Fulbright scholar in South Africa. She's joining us via Skype from there. So, Bruce, that was a really funny clip, but it's also kind of weird I mean, in your memoir, for example, there's uh, in any, any African-American person's memoir, there's going to be some stuff about this, whether it's the, the stuff in your memo- mem- memoir about uh, white philanthropists who are willing to support the National Urban League uh, in uh, liaison with your grandfather, but not the more militant NAACP of W.E.B. Du Bois. It's just sort of kind of strange that here in 2017 you could write a conversation like the one we just heard. It seems like a conversation straight out of 1968.
3: Well, you know, I think that, um, as, as brought up by your comment about Baldwin, uh, many of the themes that were pertinent in 68 are certainly pertinent uh, today. Um, and, you know, I'd like to get back to this topic about culture that was brought up earlier. I think it's really important for us to recognize how important culture is, but at the same time to not... Um, overemphasize the role of culture when we're talking about the question of black mobility um... um Chris brought up uh, when she was talking about health and wealth and outcomes that you know what are the key conditions for uh... the black community is segregation and i would argue that in fact uh, the data shows time and time again that segregation is strongly related all of these outcomes when we're talking about segregation within uh, housing markets, segregation within health markets, uh, segregation within labor markets. And so um, despite the gains that have been made, and there have been major gains since the 20s and 40s and even the 60s, um, there still remains this sticky dilemma of historic segregation and how that contributes both to the inability of uh, the black middle class to accumulate wealth and the inability of the black middle class to gain access to good health care.
2: Well, it also contributes to the immobility of the black lower class. and Gene, we're sitting here in Hartford, Connecticut, which, well, you know, is a kind of, you should pardon the expression, masterpiece of segregation. Uh, It is an incredibly segregated city whose school system has suffered miserably at the hands of that segregation. And I know you're out of town these days. You probably do know that the Hartford Current recently did this multi-part series where they just looked, you know, decades after all the various court remedies have been sought, uh, at problems that you and I did write about in, in the- say, late 1970s, early 1980s, yep. they are exactly the same as a result of the segregation that Bruce is talking about. And uh, and the segregation is the same.
0: Yes. And I, I would say that <laughs> they've gotten worse here, I mean, in, in the city of Hartford. I mean, in terms of just the way things have been broken up and brought down to the point where... I don't know where I, what I would do with my child if I were a parent, a black parent, in in this in, in living in this city with the options that were available. They've tried in their way to create magnet schools and other things, but the infrastructure, uh, from from what I've read over the last here, you know, I've read the Hartford Current series and I've read other things. The infrastructure is bewilderingly. Stilted right now. Is, am I? Am I? Does it Does it? Am I saying something that's untrue here? Has it? Has it really gotten worse does, as it seems to me? Is, has it gotten worse? I think it's
2: gotten more dire. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, Chris, as a demographer, this is—we're sort of in your bailiwick a little bit here too. I mean, one of the things that we—that a demographer can tell us is how how outcomes. Uh, whether their fiscal outcomes or health outcomes or uh, health outcomes are conditioned by where you live. Obviously, this is an 18-hour conversation, but give us the quick version of it.
1: Right. So, as a demographer, I'm really interested in residential segregation and where people live. I'm particularly interested in where the Black middle class lives and how segregated they are. So, three of the main um, theories that are, have been used to explain segregation are economics discrimination and preferences. So people don't have the money to live where they wanna live, so they have to live in segregated neighborhoods. They're discriminated in, in the housing market, so they live in segregated neighborhoods, or there's a preference for certain racial and ethnic groups to live in certain areas because they wanna be, maybe possibly around other people that live like, live are, are like them or look like them. So regardless of which explanation you use, you can't lose focus of the fact that in the social science literature, The black middle class in particular live in a spatial buffer between the black poor and the white middle class. So living between the black poor and the white middle class, there are certain outcomes and certain life chances that are limiting for the black middle class. Now, this is the group that we think has the economic power to live where they want to live. But because of a discriminatory housing market, either overt or covert, they're still kind of segregated in these areas that have issues for their life outcomes. And that's something we need to, like, really think about. So being black and middle class, again, your race still matters. And your race matters because if we think about segregation, you're still segregated into an area that doesn't give you the same outcomes as uh, the white middle class.
2: When, when you say outcomes, just get a little bit more specific for just a second.
1: So like I was mentioning earlier, like health outcomes or wealth outcomes. Mm. I teach my students that um, we talk about wealth disparities. And I tell them if whites were to stop accu- accumulating wealth today, it would take blacks over 200 years to catch up to where whites are. Yep. And one of, the biggest, one of the biggest assets for wealth would be homeownership. And so, if blacks are owning homes in areas that don't, that aren't as strong economically as whites. That's where the, the health, the wealth disparity is going to continue. So, if we just use wealth as an outcome, we see that blacks are either discriminated against in the housing market, or for whatever reason, psychologically may choose to live in predominantly black areas. But that means that the outcomes are going to look different for blacks and whites along Colin, wealth measures.
3: Colin, can I jump in
2: here? Please and, do
3: and relate it back to the book. Um, when I talk about my family, my grandfather managed to purchase some homes during the depression, but all the per- buildings that he purchased were in Harlem, in segregated neighborhoods, and we're talking about brownstones. If those brownstones were located in Lower Manhattan, um, in the 70s, they would have been worth ooh four to ten million apiece. But in my neighborhood, they were selling for fifty to hundred thousand um, dollars. The ability for my family to pass on wealth to me, had our homes been downtown in unsegregated neighborhoods, I probably never would have had to work a day in my life just from the homes that my grandfather had purchased. We would have been Mm multimillionaires. But instead, we had just enough to finance my private school education.
2: Um, I think what I'm going to do here, there's, there's I've got so many things that I want to talk about. No, actually, I'm not going to go to a break. I want to, I want to slightly switch the topic here for a second and uh, you come back to everything that we've been through over the last couple of years. And, and I will say, and I, Bruce, I grant your point about culture, but I also think it's really interesting the way culture has been scratching at the wounds that we're talking to in a very specific way right now, whether it is, I mean, I think Jordan Peele's movie Get Out is really an interesting movie about the so-called post-racial society and all the politeness that papers over a, a lot of racism and exploitation. You've got the James Baldwin revival. You've got Donald Glover's Atlanta, which is really interesting. You've got the work of ta Coates. You've got a series like Blackish. You've got the overlooked television work of John Ridley, who's t- this incredible series, American Crime, which is really about race in books. There was Paul Beatty's The Sellout, Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad, which is to a certain degree kind of tearing apart a little bit some of the mythologization uh, of the Underground Railroad. Uh, Ben Winter's Underground Airlines, which uh, extended a a lot of that thinking into the modern time. It's clearly something that a lot of people want to direct our attention to, Gene, want us to get at. But I'm sort of wondering why, and I'm wondering if part of it is that there are two groups of people who are rebelling against the Barack Obama presidency and maybe the, the Shonda Rhimes, Lee Daniels depiction of black life in America. One of them are Trump One group is Trump supporters. Then the other group are African-Americans who would say, no, 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 no. These, all of these things are still absolutely in play and need to be dealt with.
0: Well, let me start by saying that the, the, the kind of momentum you're talking about in all the different arts in fiction, film, television, et cetera, that's not stopping OK, mm-hmm. that's 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 going to keep on going no matter what happens in Washington or doesn't happen in Washington. So we'll just we'll just we'll just go from there. Um, this is this this movement, this surge has been characterized by many as the woke movement. You know, people talk about, well, it's time to get woke and it's not just whites but blacks that need to realize that we're that we've been asleep or half asleep on these things and we're now waking up. Maybe Obama's election was a wake up call that 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 put everything that happened during his administration, including and especially uh the police shootings and other things that that generated the Black Lives Matter movement as being something of being of being woke. And to me, I, I guess if I have um Qualms about that. It's that okay. You wake up, but when your eyes are open, you've got to really kind of keep them open and stare for a while at what's in front of you. It is just a way of 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 sort of generating immediate outrage. You have to really take the time and think about what has been kept from your perceptions on -hmm. this. And and let me just say that in in all just about all the cases you talked about, whether it was Donald Glover, James Baldwin. If you go back to the people who were active in the civil rights movement, going back to the start of the century, all they wanted was to clear a space in their lives that they could live their lives the way they wanted to, period. I mean, you take all the and, – and and I think that that kind of elemental perception is missing in, in whatever venue or in whatever field you're talking about. People have to remember that part of it.
2: But Bruce, your book deals a lot with the question of er of erasure. Um, Chris, was you were just trying to say something? I didn't didn't mean to talk over you. Sure, try and write in for a minute.
1: For a minute, Um, I think I have a slightly different take on um, what was just said, and I I would argue that people of color, blacks, since we're talking about blacks in particular right now, blacks have always been woke.
2: Being black in
1: America, I agree. um, it's pretty clear that you're you're black in America. Something's going to happen probably without it, within any given day to let you know that you yes. um, are black in America. Uh, and if you don't, if you're not quite awoke, you're you're going to have a, a racialized moment. And everybody has that racialized moment where they realize right. they're black in America. So I think blacks have always been awoke. Yeah. No, I don't know agree. that they're just now starting to wake up. Yeah, I think th- just kind
2: of... I think woke is a little bit more appropriated by people like me um, <laughs> than it is. Why
1: is starting that possibly wake up a bit more. And I think a good example of awakening them are maybe the police shootings. But blacks and, blacks and people of color in America, I think it's very clear. We, we, we're we black in America.
2: We never sleep. All right, I am going to go to a break right now. When I When I come back, I want to turn to Bruce. I want to talk a little bit about the whole question of cultural erasure, too. It's not just a matter of clearing a space. It's a matter of holding your space. And it's also a matter of forces that might want to even erase your own history. I think it's going on right now with the legacy of the Obamas as well. Open the streets
3: and watch our beliefs and when they call my name inside the concrete I pray it for everything Freedom, freedom, I can't move Freedom, cut me loose hey, yeah. Freedom, freedom, where are you? Cause I need freedom
0: too
3: I break chains up on myself Won't let my freedom ride in hell Hey, I'ma, I'ma keep, keep running, running Cause a winner don't, don't, don't quit on those
1: Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan with help from me Kyone Wolf our intern is Carmen Baskoff and our executive producer is Katie Tularski the part of Bill Curry was played by Donald Glover on tomorrow's show the state
2: and evolution of late night comedy and now back to Colin all right uh, we are looking at uh, the world uh, as and maybe sort of a, a America, uh, as it looks to African Americans in 2017, as a w- as opposed to the way it looks uh, to uh, the white majority. Uh, joining us, uh, Gene, C- t- the temporary white majority, I might add. Uh, Gene Seymour, cultural critic uh, and writer uh, for publications including CNN Opinion and The Baffler, Book Forum, The Nation. Bruce Haynes, professor of sociology at UC Davis, co-author of the memoir Down the Upstairs. Uh, Chris Marsh, demographer and associate professor of sociology at the University of Maryland, currently a Fulbright scholar in South Africa from which she is joining us via Skype. So Bruce Haynes, I I have talked about this in the past uh, uh, as I look at things that are happening here in 2017. It's clear to me that quite apart from his own ideas about whatever his own political philosophy might be, Donald Trump and the people who follow him are pecking away very, very deliberately at anything that could be considered the the Obama legacy, not just the Affordable Care Act, but anything that appears to have. Uh, An Obama's signature to it. And I can't pretend to look inside the skull of this guy and understand what's going on, but one possible explanation would be that it's almost a reflex, that this is one of the things that a segment of white America tends to do, that that the erasure of black accomplishments is, is almost like a motor skill at this point. I don't know. It's something you deal with in your book, and maybe you could just say a little bit about it.
3: Well, you know, it, the, the absence of my grandfather from history... Um, is is a unique thing. I think it, it, it comes about because of the way in which the history of the discipline of sociology is told. Um, we tell the history of the discipline largely through the Chicago School, who we credit with being the first uh, professional and, and research-oriented scholars. But in fact, uh, Du Bois and the Atlanta School um, were doing empirical sociology uh, a decade before the Chicago School. And as a result, scholars like Monroe Work, a uh, prolific writer and mathematician uh, and a sociologist, or my grandfather, uh, a leading scholar on black migration, first black PhD from Columbia University, and founder of the Urban League, uh, he was ignored along with Richard R. Wright, who is another sociologist and president of the AME Zion Church um, and a bishop there. Um, So that whole generation was obscured by the E. Franklin Frazier's and St. Clair Drake's and Horace Caton's that came out of the Chicago school a generation later. Um, So I don't blame that uh, necessarily on... um, It it has to do with a certain uh, professionalization that took place within the discipline of sociology, that in the process, sociology as not in, an engaged discipline. And the first black scholars were certainly engaged scholars. They, need, they wanted to make social change, and in fact, uh, both Du Bois and Haynes created organizations. Um, but professional sociologists are, you know, trying to do empirical work for other scholars and, and, and were writing not to change society in the way that many of these black scholars were. So in some ways, the, the, the history of the discipline divorced the the philanthropic side of social science, and that became social
2: work. Um, I, I also want to, but I do want to talk, Gene, and well first of all, we should say that your own family story not only has W.E.B. E. Du Bois in it, but but also I sense in some of the stuff that you've written, this idea, and it's very comparable to Bruce's, that if I don't tell my family story, if I don't tell these stories, they simply won't get told. They don't turn up, yeah. you know, in your yeah. New York Times obit because you're not going to get one.
0: Right, and I think um, the thing that you said, Bruce, that was happening with sociology has happened to sociology I think is starting to happen to, to the telling of history some of those same elements are creeping into just the sheer narrative art that history at its best once was viewed solely but they're now turning history into a science and when that happens the very human accomplishments and, and, and the human dimension of what of what happens to us and what keeps happening to us gets, can can be inadvertently or not obscured um, I, do you see the connection there, Bruce? Is well, that that, that's
3: certainly happening, uh, particularly in high schools. I see yeah. where textbooks have done things like transform slaves into workers.
2: <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, Chris! Before we run out of time, I, I want, want to talk. I want to ask you what it's like to be in South Africa uh, right now, um, having the conversation that we're having about the United States, uh, and, and 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 in particular, maybe how the United States is perceived. Uh, through the, uh, at least on, on the subject of race from South Africa?
1: Um, I'm glad you asked about South Africa because I am here. I'm in Johannesburg and I'm really enjoying being here. But as soon as I start to open my mouth, people know that I'm American. So the first thing that they say, or Black American, so the first thing that they say is Trump. And so what people say about America is that we've advanced so much racially. And they'd like to get to where they'd like to come to America because they, they believe race relations are so much better in America. And whenever they say that, I and I understand that there are racial issues in South Africa. I always tell them we still have work to do in America. We haven't quite arrived yet. What we do and what we do very well is we've had 50, 60 years of learning how to use coded language when we talk about race, but the common denominators in both contexts is that racism is still an issue in both areas, and America still has a lot of work to do.
2: I don't know. Gene, you want to react to that? Oh, I
0: was going to ask you. Uh, I- I've heard from some people here in this country that there are African American families who have been tempted to emigrate to South Africa because they perceive somehow that they're on a, a-, a-, a more evolutionary path on this top. On, on this on this issue, that America is, that they see America as regressing and South Africa as advancing. Is there any truth to that? I, I just wondered if there was any... If, have you seen any evidence of that yourself in your stay there so well, far? Being,
1: well, being a Fulbright scholar, I'm associated with the embassy and the consulate, so I have met a lot of Black Americans that live here in South Africa. And I'm not exactly sure if it's because of the the racial regression that we're having in the U.S., what I know you can't discount is that money goes so much further in right. South Africa than in the US. So there's a class dimension to it. But you also have to acknowledge that there's an American privilege dimension to it. Mm. So blacks don't have the advantage of white privilege in America, but they do have the advantage of American privilege in South Africa. So you can't you have to figure out how to disentangle those notions.
0: Mm. Interesting. So, interesting. Yeah. interesting.
2: Uh, Bruce Haynes, oh, we're just almost out of time here, and uh, Down the Up Staircase uh, is such an interesting examination of three different generations. How confident are you that uh, that uh, your great-grandson or great-granddaughter who writes a comparable memoir is going to be writing a, a different kind of memoir? W- what do you think will have changed, if anything?
3: Well, I know th- uh, the... The industry has called this a memoir, but in many ways, this is a sociological memoir. And what I mean by that is it's both a personal family story, but it also tells the story of black life across the 20th century through my family. And um, if there's anything that I wanted uh, to leave um, the reader with, is that despite the privilege that my family had, I'm only one of three sons to quote, have economic success, to have uh, retained the mobility across the generations. And in fact, um, my brothers and the lives that they lived, one brother being shot in the Bronx when he was 23, the other brother uh, not going to college and uh, working in working class jobs and becoming mentally uh, ill in midlife, um, represents an awful lot of of the community that I left behind, and um, I think it's all, it's important that uh, that that story comes through. Not so much my personal story about my life or my family, but the story of how my family is representative of an entire generation of Black people in
2: Harlem. Right. I I if there was one thing that I was really eager to. To, to get to that we're not going to because we are like just flat out out of time right now. Uh, the story of your brother, I believe his name is George, who became involved with Nation of Islam uh, and uh, and then with mental illness, as you say, uh, is a remarkable story and kind of is an interesting flesh and blood incarnation of some of the issues that we're talking about here today. But anyway, out of time. I have to do a whole other show. Or As I said at the beginning, uh, I feel that we all on this show agree that we need to do many episodes about race it's a it's a big topic it never goes away uh, thanks so much to our guest today Gene Seymour Bruce Haynes and Chris Marsh. Thanks also to Betsy Kaplan for pulling this show together. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with a somewhat, probably more late-hearted show <laughs> about this. But, but in fact, the way the state of late night comedy includes many of the issues that we talked about today that are processed out there. We'll also be talking to the biographer of David Letterman, uh, Jason Zinneman. Anyway, join us for that, uh, and we'll be here all week.
0: Kick-pop, the cops shut down the party. Jeans sag low, Glow smoke low, out of the ditches. We've got a lot for y'all, well, We're switching gonna go, go with things. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah. the don't hate yeah, you know, us. We're fabulous, oh yeah. yeah. for local calls. little dancing divas up the, the more. More. That's how we walk.